21st episode of Regulate Tech with me, Niklas Berl Lumblad, and with me, Richard Allen. Currently in a boat. Currently in a boat, yes, yes, uh, my yes. floating office. And what I did there was quite nifty, wasn't it? Because I geolocated you in a boat somewhere in the vicinity of London. And we, this, today's issue, we're going to talk a little bit about um, geography and geotechnology and all of the things that have to do with place. Because there's a specific set of issues there that aren't necessarily unique, but they show up in a unique way. If you think about how how maps and all of those other things that we use on our, our phones and our services uh, connect with policy. So uh, let's start with sort of just some some basics here. How, how do you think about the geographical graph, as it were? What's the, what is it? How does it work? Why is it useful? Yeah. I mean, again, it's one of these um, curious subjects that we use and, and take for granted and then often don't dig into well you know how, how did these maps come about who's created them why did they create them um and so i think just starting there and thinking about uh, what well there's two, two two areas i think that we need to look at one is mapping so the the visual representation of the the world and the other is uh the database of where everything is in the world and and the 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 maps are obviously underpinned by the database, but it's actually quite helpful sometimes to unpick the two uh, and think of a map as a visual representation of a set of data, um, and then to then start thinking about well, who was collecting that data? Why were they collecting it? Uh, and it can be intensely political. Um, there are some issues like. You know, does the is the data associated with the correct country? Um, and there, there can be countries either side of a border who both believe that certain uh, pieces of land should be theirs, and therefore, if you're going to represent that data, you should be representing it in their country, not another country. Uh, there's questions around power and and the collection of that data. You know, is mapping the, something that is done by one group of people, powerful people, to less powerful people, for example. Um, in the United Kingdom, centuries ago, we had this whole process of something called the enclosures, where land that had previously been open and available to everyone was uh, enclosed and made private. And a lot of the mapping came from that. It was driven by the fact that people were now staking claim to pieces of land, and therefore they needed to create a, a database and a map of all the pieces of land that they now said that they own that previously were just common land. Um, so lots of issues to unpick. But as I say, I think if we start from this sort of core principle that we're talking about a database of locations in, in all sorts of different forms, and then we're talking about visual representations of that data. Yes, and one another way to think about that is to say that we're talking about the geograph, as it were, a graph of all of the connections between different geographical places, and then whatever moves on that graph in different ways, or you know, is situated on the graph. And I, mm -hmm. I, I, I think it's really interesting. I think your point about maps and power is a good place to start because, in a sense. You know, if you look at the expansion of colonialism, that was about expanding the map. Uh, there were all these countries who said, well, we don't know what's over there. Let's go there. And they mapped it. And hence, by mapping it, also made a claim and said, this is now our ground. Much to the surprise to the people who were already living there, but uh, they were unfortunately soon pushed off. And so, so there's something about mapping that's deeply related to power. And I think that mm -hmm. comes out in the in the quite heated disputes that can exist over map issues. I think there are no. I mean, obviously there are all of the horrible issues around uh, some controversial content like child sexual abuse imagery that are also very heated. But I think that amongst the conflicts that I've seen in my uh, my time doing policy, <laughs> the geo geo conflicts are amongst the most heated, and they're really they sort of they really tear up people's uh, relationship to each other, nations' relationships to each other. I mean, an example would be um, the, the islands that exist between Japan and uh, Korea that Koreans call Dokdo and the Japanese call Taikuko. Uh, who those islands belong to is a big deal. And it's not just sort of a big deal commercially, rationally. It's an emotional big deal. So maps is one of the most emotional issues I've, I've come across, I think. Yeah, so I'm curious on that, and, it, and uh, it's time for me to sort of tease out some of your experience uh, with Google Maps, which is obviously the product. If people think of online digital mapping, uh, 
they may occasionally think of Apple Maps and some some of the also rans, but they're probably going to think first and foremost about Google Maps. Um, uh, how did you deal with that then? So, so how did you deal with the fact that you have a set of islands called one thing in Japan and another thing in Korea, and you have customers in both Japan and Korea? And what would I see, for example, if I'm sitting here in the UK and I went and looked at those islands? Well, the idea was to be as open as possible about whether or not a geographical area was disputed. And so what you tried to do was that, you know, if you're coming from any domain anywhere, uh, you would say that here is a geographical area that's disputed. And disputed just means that there are, there are two parties that have different views on who this belongs to. Now, that in itself turns out to be very controversial as well, because the recognition of a dispute is in some way something that people really resist too, because that you means... Sides. Both sides could be angry with you. <laughs> Which is sort of what you're aiming for, because if you do that, you can at least sort of you can sort of still sort of walk back from the situation and say, look, yeah. folks, it's your battle. And it's not going to be resolved, no matter mm. what you think, by an American company putting names on maps. That's not how these things resolve. But there's there's something here about the 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 immediacy and sort of the visceral experience of a map that make them curiously powerful also in digital format. So so people would get upset because they thought that it meant much more than it meant. Really, it was a digital image representing a territory with the label disputed, but it was felt as if it was a claim, a universal claim, not made by a sort of private entity, but a universal claim made about that piece of land. And there's something there that that really fascinated me. And it and and the way to deal with it, the only way we could deal with it was really to try to point out where it's disputed and then try to point out that if you're coming from one country, uh, then we could easily call it you know, Docto. If you're coming from another country, we could call it Taikyoku. Or we could do the Sol- Salomonical thing and, and sort of say Docto and then slash Taikyoku. <laughs> and then they, would, then they would argue about the order of the names. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So we sort of get into that discussion in that and and I think and I think it's just you know I I I have a lot of respect for people wanting to think about their territory and defend their territory and there's history there these islands have been disputed since the 16th century so it's it's it was it's sort of not a new question and mm. there is even an ambassador of geographical naming appointed by the Korean State Department that works with this and sort of tries to to assert what what Korea thinks is the right way to think about this and and all that makes perfect sense but it is interesting that it then lands in the in the uh, in the with the the tech companies who who are really just trying to provide a very simple service but that service is interpreted as so much more but to your question the other thing you try to do is that you try to find external yardsticks yes. so so there are all of these funny institutions all around the world that like, like there's a in i think it's in geneva there's this institution for the naming of large bodies of water yes. uh, which, which sounds like a harry potter organization yes. but it's not <laughs> and and then you have um, you have the un's naming conventions, you have the US State Department. And so there's like a basket of authoritative sources here that you try to use in order to, to, not, uh, to not take on too much of that judgment yourself. I mm. think that the challenge here is that, that a lot of times you feel that you know what the right solution is. And if your basket of sources doesn't tell you that that's the solution you should apply, there's a temptation to come in and say, well, I'm just going to do this enormously nifty compromise across the server. And then suddenly you take on the accountability of being the person who named. And you don't want to be the person who does the geographical naming. Yes. You want that to come from other sources. And so that's a that's a fundamental challenge. Most cases, I think Google, Facebook, other companies are are quite good at drawing on external sources and reflecting them. But the end result is still that the the angry calls are are sort of taken by by the tech companies, yeah. and so <laughs> and the policy so people in the tech companies, who's the government? The policy people, <laughs> absolutely, um, or or even set up meetings with. I had uh, yeah. from non-disclosed countries people coming to me when I worked in Mountain View to to set up meetings and speak to me for two hours about a geographical naming issue, and it was it was really they were incredibly well prepared, sincere people, but but it always struck me as as weird that they were addressing this to me and not to the UN. 
yeah. I, I mean, I think the, the reminder that it's nothing new is is important. I, I remember um, back in the early part of my career, I was uh, excavating archaeological sites in Ecuador, and Ecuador has a really long running border dispute with Peru. There's an area that which is sort of largely wilderness, um, but which the oil companies, I think, were arguing over in the 1920s. And and it was never settled. And the story then was, look, if you, if you were caught in Ecuador with a Peruvian map that showed this in Peru, then you would be arrested. It was a, a kind of treasonous offence and vice versa. If you were caught in Peru with the Ecuadorian version of the map, you could be in all sorts of trouble. Of course, like with so many other things, the the, the joy of digital is – everybody now gets to see everybody's maps. And so as I say, for a long period of time, the way that you dealt with it was, and I'm sure it'd be the same with India, China, and a lot of other disputed territories, you, you, you had the local version of the map in each country, and you physically <laughs> would prevent other versions of the map from coming in and have legal sanctions against use of other versions of the map. But of course, as you say now, once everyone's using the same map, the Google map or whoever else's map, the open street map, uh, now um, they, they, there are no sort of, there's no separation of the two different versions in a, in a meaningful sense. And mapping offices have historically very often been associated with the military, right? Who does the mapping? The military does. The military has the most exact maps over uh, a country because, you know, they require them should they have to defend the country in different ways. So so mapping really has been this super sensitive issue. And having the ability to map a country, for example, for satellite pictures, is something that, that cuts deeply into this sense of national security and the, the relationship with with maps. And it's... And it's I, I, and, and, and it's interesting. There's there's this fun anecdote that I'm sure you've heard that there's this in 2012 there were the was the Google Maps war, um, where uh, Nicaragua ended up uh, far into if I remember correctly Costa Rica's territory, and the reason was that they were using Google Maps for their military exercises, and the border on Google Maps was drawn not f- from Costa Rican sources but from sources I think it was the U.S. State Department at the time. So so the Nicaraguan military ended up you know pitching their tents in Costa Rica territory and and it looked as if there would be you know real military tension between these two and i remember talking to a colleague of mine who was responsible for google maps policy and said you had one job (laughs) 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 let's not let's not have any wars and and but it was such a good reminder Mm. that maps are fundamentally if you sort of go back in time they've not just been about power but they've been about military power. Yeah. And it, the ability to project force across your territory is still, in law, one of the basic definitions of being able to claim sovereignty over territory. So there's a there's a lot under the surface there that's really, really interesting. Yeah, again, and that's certainly the case um, yeah, yeah, for the UK, that a lot of the mapping was around things like artillery ranges. Uh, so, so you needed uh, to map very precisely so that you knew when you fired a certain cannon of a certain diameter where the balls were going to land, you, as you say, from a kind of defensive point of view. So the mapping was all about, you know, if somebody invades our territory, um, have we got the level of precision that we need in order to be able to position our uh, artillery in the right places? And I think, again, war is often a driver for all kinds of technology. I certainly agree with you that they've been there uh, for mapping technology. But thankfully, Nicaragua and Costa Rica, whew, that was resolved. But but to your point of... Um, you know the the balance between companies and not. I I do remember. I'll name the country. I think it was Kosovo um, when I was in in Facebook, and and it was really important for the government of Kosovo, which is a, an emerging country. It was a country that was it, it, sort of largely recognised at a certain point, but there was still uh, some people who would dispute that Kosovo was an independent territory. And I remember that they were really excited that when when they were recognised by Facebook as a separate geographical territory, that was a really big moment for them. And and you could see that. It's, it's really curious that what 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 signifies the arrival of a new territory, a newly independent territory, will be uh, the fact that when you go onto your you know digital applications, uh, that when you go to those lists of countries, uh, the ones in which the United Kingdom is always impossible to find because you don't know if it's Great Britain, Britain, United Kingdom, or England, it could be anywhere geographically, but uh, in those lists of countries – you know, uh, do you feature and then do you feature on the the maps associated with those products? It's a really big deal, I think, uh, now that sort of digital birth of a country as opposed to the legal and political birth of that country. 
No, I think that's right. And I think it, I mean, it also has to do with what happens when you enter their top domain. Do you respect and geocode to that top domain or do you geocode to another top domain? And so so the, there is there is not a de jure, but sort of a de facto uh, recognition mechanism at play there. And it, and, and it has no formal value and, and it shouldn't be overplayed, but there's something there that people really care about. You know, if, if, if you're looking at Facebook, for example, in Palestine, or if you're looking at Google search in Palestine, if there is a landing page that says Facebook Palestine, Google Palestine, whatever, that's something that is taken as an indication that the company and perhaps the world is starting to recognize what nationhood perhaps and and so there, it's really it's really quite fascinating how that works and it's I, I also think that one of the things that has always struck me as 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 really interesting is that that that's also um, why uh, many of these countries uh, reach out actively to to mapping companies and try to to get uh, recognition that way. Um, that introduces another element, and actually that the Israel-Palestine situation is one of those where um, the other proxy for where people are is their phone number, and yeah. the phone number uh, may not correspond <laughs> to uh, the nation states as we sort of see them because people uh, may be serviced by a service provider. And so, for example, in the uh, territories, some of the territories that are uh, disputed or or mostly Palestinian may be using mobile phone providers that use the same codes as uh, the Israelis, and therefore, if again you may be presenting someone with with a piece of information that says, you know, you're in Israel, actually, you're not really saying that. You're saying you're using an, uh, a phone that's within the Israeli numbering system uh, or the numbering system associated with Israel. And again, unpicking all of that can, can get you into all kinds of trouble where it wasn't your intention to make a a statement about who should own a territory or to revisit any of the United Nations resolutions over the last 50 years, you were simply sort of taking a phone number and making an assumption based on that phone number. Um, and, and, you know, in reality, if you want to keep everyone happy, you'd have to get more granular or kind of tease out uh, phone number and geography as opposed to phone number alone. Um, but say, so I think Google and Facebook and other tech companies, this is their daily diet of issues that get raised with them is when these kind of things happen uh, these anomalous events happen yeah yeah exactly and, and they're always always the assumption is that there's nefarious intent behind yeah. <laughs> and yeah. so which is you know it's fair you should suffer scrutiny if you're large and successful but but it's it's interesting i think and and as we speak about it i think it's also important to to point out that yes this is a question that states care a lot about and yes this is a question that generates a lot of political controversy between states but it's also you know the geographical graph uh, and everything that's on it can also be used for completely different purposes. One of my favorite examples is tracking deforestation, for example, in uh, in the Amazonas, uh, where satellite imagery can give you a good sense over time of what's happening, or, or even tracking um, different kinds of... Um, people movements in Africa that's been done in other kinds of projects and and having the idea to to sort of use the visibility and transparency of geography for good. And I think that's something that is often forgotten when we talk about the power. We think of it as a top-down power. But it actually also makes the, the, the geograph, if you want, available to other people who can use it for what I think are really beneficial purposes. Yeah. And and this is where I think we we um really need to get into issues to do with uh, database rights and copyright and who owns data. Um because again it's one of those areas where it may seem relatively straightforward that there's a map, I can use it, um, I'm collecting some data, I can add it to the map and then I can publish that is the sort of working assumption. But in reality, in this geographical space, you often end up with data that is very mixed in terms of its ownership, and quite a lot of it is actually um, protected by copyright uh, that exists within those databases. So again, um, to take the example of Google Maps, there is data within Google Maps that is freely available, but Google Maps was built up by buying in sources of data from all kinds of companies, uh, and those sources of data may themselves impose license conditions that can't then just be freely offered to other people. Um, and so, again, people who are familiar with this area will know about OpenStreetMap, which is a very deliberate attempt to create a fully open uh, database. So anything that goes in the OpenStreetMap database 
the the assumption is that the person has granted a open source license effectively they've said look anyone can take this and use it um but in order to guarantee that really the only way to 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 know your data is 100% clean is for a human being to go somewhere, record the geographical feature as being there into the database and say, look, this was me. I did this and I am freely giving of my work. And a lot of the effort that you have to do is making sure that that's what's actually going in the database rather than these you know, fabulous complete data sets already exist, but over which somebody else claims some database rights. So if you just kind of wholesale imported a bunch of geographical data that have been collected by a government mapping agency, for example, or somebody else, you would then pretty soon hit an issue because that agency, unless it was freely giving of its data, would say, hang on a minute, I haven't said you can just use my data. So I say that you end up in this bizarre world where the data exists. It's very widely available, but not freely available, if we can sort of make that distinction between wide availability and free in the sense of you are free to take it and do what you like with it. Yes, and that's interesting also because this has been a policy issue for quite some time. The the sort of public um, uh, sector information directive, the PSI directive, has been thinking about things like geodata held by governments and how to make it openly available to at least European citizens. And there are there are similar uh, very strong initiatives in the US. So public sector information availability in the US is also is quite good. But but it's always interesting when you discuss this with the geographical agencies, because they want to be able to license their data, and they want to be able to sort of make um, some kind of revenue stream from it that then goes to funding the agency, because historically, the agency has been sought up with a funding requirement from the data. And so public sector information um, should, according to the sort of broad Broad policy view of both the European Union and of the US be openly available and freely available to your point, not just widely available. Um, but but we're still a far way away from from reaching that goal, which is why I think OpenStreetMap is so interesting because the cost of mapping has also gone down. The kind of collaborative mapping that you can do now is is quite amazing, and I would not be surprised if the geograph is not just widely available in 10 years, but perhaps also openly available. Yeah. I mean, t- the the big change that's happened, obviously, is with satellite imagery, uh, which, which is actually made um, freely available, at least for these purposes. And then you can do two things. One is is to have humans looking at the satellite imagery and plot things onto a map. So there are teams that open uh, street maps, there's one called the humanitarian open street map team, who, particularly where there's a disaster or there are you know, flows of refugees in a part of the world, they will get uh, groups of people sitting around together with computers, uh, tracing buildings and features from those satellite maps directly into OpenStreetMap. And if, if anyone is listening to this is interested, I'd, I'd definitely recommend giving it a try. I've done it. They have these hackathons where you get together and you you start mapping an area. It's very satisfying as you, you see the map build. Um, so that's one piece of it. And then the other piece, which is really coming on by leaps and bounds, you mentioned earlier, is machine learning. And so again, I was looking at a project in, in the UK where um, from environmental purposes, it would be really helpful to know where all the installed solar panels are. Uh, uh, and and there is no map of all the installed solar panels because they've gone in haphazardly over the years. And again, people are trying to train machine learning systems so that they can, with a reasonably high degree of accuracy, you, you may need some human checking afterwards, but with a reasonably high degree of accuracy, they can ingest satellite maps and flag all the buildings that look like they might have uh, um, photovoltaic solar panels on the roof um and so it's that kind of exercise that's super useful this combination of now machine learning with some human checking that has the prospect of creating some great um freely usable maps of course you know that's only going to happen if the people who are doing that work who are funding all of this exercise are committed themselves to making the end product available on an open license um I mean, to your point about the, the existing agencies, you're right. I mean, the UK, for example, I'm, there's a battle I'm fighting sort of separately that the Royal Mail, which is the main postal agency now now privatised, they bring in about £30 million a year uh, by licensing the database of addresses. So you, you cannot have a free database of addresses in the UK, which seems absurd. Like the, my house address is not, <laughs> I can't get a list of all the addresses in the UK without paying these people money. And But their, their argument is, look, our, our post people go around every day and as part of their work, 
they record the changes in addresses and and so we must get paid for them to do that bit of work um be interesting to see whether we get some rivals now because there are people like amazon who go around every house or go around a large number of the premises in the uk every day and maybe they'll build their own database and put that out freely but for now you've got to pay these people uh for a license before you can access that database so that's really restrictive and feels really off um so i say it'd be interesting to see how much we get competitors from organizations like OpenStreetMap, from from uh, uh, people like Amazon and others who, who have large delivery routes, the extent to which they're willing to put the data they collect into the public domain. Um, and that way, we wouldn't, if that was a reliable database, have to pay a license fee for the more restricted uh, versions that have historically been used. And at the same time, I mean, we're creating so enormous, enormous amount of geographical data. Just think about every photo uploaded. Every photo uploaded, if it's uploaded with complete metadata, for example, contains something about the, the geography, geographical location where it was taken. Very often, if you use a digital camera, and so, so you have this expanding, enormously quickly expanding space of geographical data that is openly available and uh, widely available through, for example, just looking at photos. You could use all of those photos. To, to do the most amazing things. And then there are people who are starting to use machine learning to, to do this. One of my favorite examples was this app that allowed you to, to sort of look at New York City and decide the hipster index of different parts of New York <laughs> City. And the way it did that was by looking at different selfies from uh, photo services and determining the uh, frequency of beards. Um, so... <laughs> So yes. the, the frequency of beards and beer. And so they would use those to sort of have a hipster index designed around, which is just one really simple example. And I'm frankly both surprised and slightly dismayed that you haven't mentioned satellite photo archaeology yet. Ah, because yes. that's a huge, I mean, yeah. over to you. <laughs> well, again, I mean, that, that, that goes way back. Um, it, it's got better, but they, for those who, who, who aren't familiar with the practices, I mean, it, it traditionally was done based largely on crops uh and so at different seasons of the year um you'll get different growth of crops and and crops will reflect the underlying uh, whatever is underneath the soil and so they'll grow uh, to different lengths or at different colors and so actually your classic certainly british uh, satellite imagery archaeology was um long summers evenings uh where planes would go up um, and they would take these photos, and, and actually some of them are quite stunning. You, you can kind of see the layouts of buildings just by the change in the color of the crops around that. Um, and this obviously has improved now with machine learning. There's just so much more you can do uh, in terms of uh, you're not just dependent on the human eye, but you can you can sort of test a whole bunch of different theories. You can look at where you've got um, you know existing uh, stuff on the ground and sort of do A/B testing, trying to figure out whether or not another photo with a similar kind of feature is going to be the same as the uh, feature, the known feature, is the unknown feature. No, it's just like yeah, it's all very exciting. Um, yes. You've still got to get down on the ground and get yourself dirty at some point. Yes. And Google Earth, of course, has become a major tool <clears throat> for archaeology. And you yep. can discover entire lost cities in the Amazonas with it. There is a, there's a good book about that if you Google it. Um, and Once so you I discover think, them, they're not lost. Nicholas, well, you know, all, all who wander are not lost. I think I think they're lost still, but they're sort of. You know, it's a valid yeah. point. Um, so, so with that, we're sort of slowly inching over from the geograph itself to the data located on hmm. it, also organized by it, rather. And and the big issue there, of course, that a lot of people are thinking about is location. Uh, yes. location data so how should we think about location data is it is, should we shut it off on our phones should we is it useful not useful what do you think i mean it's it's just extraordinarily valuable and 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 i, I think there are probably sort of th three broad classes of things that could have a location associated with them one is 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 actual features of the geography and so that's everything from sort of buildings through to post boxes through to bus stops whatever it is and i think they're interesting i, I think it's relatively uncontroversial though some people do have real sensitivities around addresses um and and would say that you know they're worried about address data on its own normally that worry only kicks in where the address is associated with a person um so you've got a, a say a physical feature in the world 
with a set of coordinates and location. It's not going to move. Uh, it's going to be created. It may be changed. It may be destroyed. Um, but it itself is not perambulating around the landscape. And then you've got a whole set of other things, uh, and cars would be the classic example, vehicles, where it's really interesting to know where they are uh, for all sorts of reasons. And they're increasingly location aware, and they're giving off their location all the time to insurance companies and manufacturers and to all sorts of people. And again, the car, that a vehicle, an object that's owned by a person may feel a little bit more sensitive, but it's still you know, not necessarily, uh, uh, it itself is not personal data. Knowing a car license plate and knowing where that car was it, it is not itself sort of personally identifiable information until you then connect it to the owner of the car or the driver of the car. But question feels a bit more sensitive. And then the, the final category, the most sensitive of all is people. Yes, where are people at any particular moment in time? But if you think from the point of view of the value that you get, um, for example, as a town planner, if you're trying to figure out how to make your town or city work, you need all three sets of data. <laughs> you need to know you know, where the physical infrastructure is. You need to know about particularly transport uh, and this sort of movable infrastructure. And then you need to know where the people are. Um, and so there's some really interesting questions to kind of work through as to how you can get advantage the advantage of all of that data. And the, there's no doubt that there is huge advantage to it um, at the same time as kind of protecting against the privacy risk. And yes, this notion that somebody knows where I am all the time, uh, I think all of us (laughs) would find kind of creepy in, in, well, pretty much in all circumstances, we want to be able to control where and when people know uh, our location. And that's a sort of basic human desire. We talked about the privacy session of this sort of idea of privacy as being that you're not being observed uh you know involuntarily and and the there is nothing sort of more intrusive i think than somebody without your permission or uh, consent sort of observing where you are uh at all times um that really is hyper intrusive so it's definitely a real problem that needs to be uh, managed dealt with and safeguards need to be put in place but again, it seems as if technology is moving in the opposite direction. Look at, for example, Apple tags, the idea of putting small tags on stuff to find out where there are and be able to locate them. There are already a lot of issues being raised around uh, different kinds of abuses that can be put to this. Obviously, the location on your phone is the same thing. What I've found recently uh, that I think is an interesting change is that there are a lot of websites that ask for my location. Yes. Um, especially when I'm, you know, if I'm surfing to buy something, etc. And and it makes sense because, you know, it, it, in one sense, if you imagine search without location and you go buy flowers, and you know, you would get any flower shop that's reasonably popular, but it could be on the other side of the planet, uh, or at least within your linguistic reach. So if you're doing this in London, you could get a flower shop in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. So location uh, is one of the most important data points in providing a search result that is appreciated by users and evaluated as high quality by users. And, uh, you know, not that many searches are personalized, much fewer than people think. I think it's around 3%. What's most important in the 3% is location. And that's also what makes those searches more valuable to users. So so there is an enormous value there, but there's also... Um, there's also an increasing tendency to collect it and an increasing amount of different technologies that allow you to collect it, which seems to suggest that, again, if we're looking at the long arc of the trend here, the location population of the geographical graph is going to be much denser uh, in 10 years than it is now, right? Yeah, I, I mean, I think that that shift towards an explicit request for location, which I, I agree, I certainly notice as well as I'm surfing the internet, though I think in part reflects some of the other developments in privacy and so so if historically you know um companies would feel websites would feel very comfortable inferring location from other data or using cookies uh perhaps to kind of set location and keep location so it'd be a whole different set of methods which are now seen as privacy intrusive you know collecting and processing your ip address without you know explicitly saying that you're doing that or using cookies for location all of these technologies are seen as privacy risks and and the trend i think is towards limiting them therefore it leaves websites with the other option which is just explicitly to say uh, hey give me your location um 
in question if you say no do they use the other techniques in the background anyway um but i think over time i, I think websites are learning and, that, and this probably is the intent this is this is the intent of the law to, to get explicit consent for location as opposed to using all of these other techniques to implicitly uh, record and store location, um, which may then come back to bite the company later when somebody says, well, how did, you know, I never gave you permission for using my location. Um, so obviously the one that's thrown the pop-up up and said, tell me, share it with me, uh, they, they will say, look, I've got, you know, very clear, explicit consent. I can prove that it's okay for me to use the location data. Yes, and with the location data, of course, comes the pattern data and the movement data, and and it's and and you know it, there has been a few cases where it's been used in um, in criminal proceedings or where the police has used evidence, looking at you know was that person there at that time, and they've not used any nifty app location technology, but just cell towers, and so the cell tower triangulation of a phone signal is enough. So location exists throughout the stack; it's not just being collected by websites and apps. It's sort of something that's collected by the basic underlying technology too. And I, 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 I think that that will become much more common as well. Yeah, I mean, I, the, the, yeah, the mobile phone no. thing is, yeah, it's, it sort of happened without us really paying much attention. It's kind of curious what we focus on and what we don't. But we essentially are all carrying tracking devices around in our pockets. Those tracking devices, again, uh, I mean, while strictly speaking, they're not necessarily you know tied to one individual in practice there's almost invariably a one-to-one relationship between the tracking device and a kind of known person especially uh, if it's your teenagers because then you <laughs> yeah. yeah um you know the company that has the tracking the location data may not know necessarily who you are but again quite a few countries including in europe um have this whole legal framework where they require people to register with their real data in order to be able to use a mobile phone i think i suspect it's kind of ignored and phones get passed around but in theory at least that mobile phone provider should have a legally mandated accurate record of who you are uh, and then they start to collect tracking data and then depending on the country there'll be different retention periods for it but that that transition has happened yeah very very sort of quickly without us really paying that much attention to it and and you're right that when it, when we do read about that data being used, it's typically in the context of something like a criminal investigation, um, and, and or the next the next closest thing, which is parenting. And so, yes. uh, in parenting, you can also you can read about parents using the location functions or a location app, or Find even my perhaps. Phone. A- or a hidden location app in order to find out where their kids are, which has led to to a lot of really good questions about, you know, how much privacy should young people have? And is it really okay for parents to be tracking them in this way? It's also led to a lot of other things that are really interesting. And that is, of course, the inevitable hacking of the geographical graph, where people start to sort of leave their phone with their friend and then go out with another burner phone. And so the phone looks as if it's safely watching videos, whereas you are out on a rave. And so yes. all of these things sort of come together. And, and the thing I found most fascinating recently on, on this point, on the hacking point, was was Simon Weckert's uh, experiment uh, in um, in Google Maps, where where he essentially had he bought ninety nine second hand cell phones, put them on the cart, drove them down the street, and Google Maps went like, "Oh, traffic jam!" And so immediately, <laughs> said, "Oh," and and I think this speaks to another thing that's really interesting. I don't think we've we've not seen even the beginning of how people will start to hack and use and and, uh, and change the geographical graph as they realize that their location is in play so there's a there's always this sort of civic surveillance if you will from below as well that that allows you to to use the same technologies as those technologies that can be used to track you um so i think we'll see a lot more of that and i think that there is a there is certainly, a, a, if you're an entrepreneur and you're looking at this, I think playing around with how to actively create location privacy is probably a very fruitful area. I think so. And, and yeah, to your point on that, on the hacking, that's fascinating. That, uh, yes, the systems become dependent on, for example, real-time knowledge of people's movements. You're right. You, you, the the level of uh, assurance you need that those are actually people as opposed to phones uh, is going to be quite important. So I guess you you'd actually need more data items, wouldn't you? You would need to know not just that it's phone, but you'd need to know 
other things about the owner of the phone in order to assure yourself that uh, it's a real person as opposed to the, the guy with the cart and the 99 burner phones on it. I, do, I was just thinking then you're probably giving some ideas to Extinction Rebellion and some of the other uh, environmental campaigning groups who can kind of block up the traffic in London now with cartloads of mobile phones as opposed to having to have bodies doing it for them. But, oh, I'm um, sure we'll see that. I'm absolutely sure we'll see that. And I think that the fact that location and the geographical graph is so fundamental and has so much to do with power means that you know we shouldn't be surprised to see some major hacking events directed at at location there's a, there's an interesting a sort of bizarre example in um, i think it's william gibson's latest book fall uh, the, uh, in which there is this they sort of fake the nuclear bombing of a city in utah by using different kinds of location cutting off cell phones etc manipulating the appearance of the city's existence so that it appears to have disappeared and i think there are really interesting new ways of using this and simon vecker is an artist so for him it was sort of a work of art to create a, a virtual um a traffic jam uh, but i think there's a lot of interesting things going to happen which leads us to, to sort of the next step here which is really the geographical graph is a vehicle of free expression you can write yes. on it you can edit it you can add on it and and you're creating this new virtual arena of speech that's oriented around geography and not just sort of free-floating global platform. And, and that can be local or it can be national, but there is something happening with this platform that I think is deeply related to speech. And I, I just don't see that that's being factored into the discussions we're having about speech generally today. Yeah, I think again, I think you're right. There's there's a particular tension, I think, with mapping that it's very convention based, and so you tend to you have a set of rules for how you record geographical data, but those conventions have not necessarily been developed by the people who are being mapped or whose territory is being mapped, and so there is a real question around the extent to which uh, uh, people are able to express their own. Uh, view of the world through a map as opposed to being constrained and forced to express it according to somebody else's rules. There's actually uh, um, quite a few academics who are looking at this and looking at that relationship between maps and expression. Um, example, I have a cousin who lives in Wales who's who's spent a lot of time working on on open source mapping. Um, and he, he rightly talks about Welsh naming conventions where uh, uh, in the Welsh language, there's a set of conventions for how places are named, often quite long names, often very descriptive names, very, very important that they're sort of accurately conveyed and yet your typical map or, or geographical database doesn't like that it kind of doesn't fit with their notion of how things should be named um there's also a lot around uh, you know functionally how do people use particular facilities in in the community and again mm -hmm. if you're mapping a community you know just kind of saying health center or you know, retail outlet or whatever may not be sufficient to properly capture what those places mean to people. It may, it may, may be way off. Uh, so as you look at that database, you're kind of going, well, I think I know what a health center is. Well, actually, no, in the context of this community, it means something quite different and the way it's used is quite different. Um, so again, the sense of uh, how do we allow people to allow people? That's a very <laughs> domineering word. How can people express them themselves and their view of the world through a map at the same time as conforming at least enough with some kind of structured data requirements that it's then useful to other people? Um, and th there's something in between, between the sort of hand-drawn, you know, 15th century map, there be monsters here, which is, <laughs> you know, a, a sort of complete form of expression. That was a valid expression of how somebody saw the world. I, I leave my immediate neighborhood and I, I hit the wilderness and the dragons. Um, uh, so that's sort of one end of the spectrum. The other end, I say, is this incredibly dry thing where you get told, no, no, uh, houses have numbers here and the numbers go from one to 56 and you're not allowed to call anything, you know, at the other end. So how do we... But how do we get to a place where it's reasonably structured and yet still expressing uh, um, how a community actually feels uh, about the, the features that are in their landscape?
And it's it's culturally so different. I remember being in Tokyo uh, many years ago and, and seeing a Tokyo ta- a taxi map. Have you seen a Tokyo taxi map? I haven't seen Tokyo taxi map. It, it's like a meter thick because the yeah. way that you number the, the cities in parts of Tokyo is that you number them in the order they were built, which conveys information about them, but not necessarily information that's helpful to a taxi driver. <laughs> so yes. unless you know the order in which they were built, you're not. And so it's a really, really thick map. And it's sort of um, an, a way to express culturally what they think is important, which is tenure in a sense you know how long has this building been around and and still we we sort of we have to find ways of expressing all those different things on maps and then maps can be again tools for good i mean one of the things that i ran across early on as i was looking at this problem was something called the tunisian prison map do you remember that Tunisian prison map. So this was a series of human rights activists who Mm. put up all of the prisons in Tunisia at the time uh, with photos and geocoded all that stuff. And and the question, of course, became, you know, is this... uh, there would be people, uh, specifically the people who were running the prisons, who thought that this was not a good idea to have on a map. Uh, and there would be other activists who said, well, this is actually a great way of documenting war crimes. And whenever you know we, we can actually um, prosecute these war crimes, you will have a full folder file map of all of the different abuses that happened and all of the people who disappeared in these prisons. So, so the prison map became a core way for human rights activists to organize their activism and to organize the documentation of of human uh, rights abuses so so it's 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 like in that case it's really free expression and it's closely coupled with the core motivation the core premise for free expression which is human rights and so so it's i, I think that's something that we'll see much more of as well um and there will mm. be a clash there between between the use of maps for accountability civic accountability and accountability in human rights and privacy and the question of, you know, how should you be able, for example, to track the location of your elected representatives in order to make sure that they're not hanging out too much with uh, companies or others? Would a, a location pattern be the new way of getting transparency into to government uh, actions? You, and, you mean like The Circle in the novel The Circle? Where they... Oh, I haven't read that, though, because oh, everyone right. tells me to, but, but I haven't. But I, yeah, just, no. I mean, but do, do they have these radical transparency? where people uh, politicians do broadcast their location minute by minute all of the time it becomes oh, wow. a thing uh, oh i thought i was thinking of something new but i obviously yeah. wasn't <laughs> <laughs> yeah but i mean on that the the mapping the fact that maps can be dual use and that tunisian example made me think of another of um uh, again when my cousin was mapping in zimbabwe and they're mapping uh, informal settlements and and you can look at that two ways. One is, you know, we need to map an informal settlement in order to be able to put in the facilities that people need, the healthcare, et cetera, et cetera. But the other is, oh, by mapping the informal settlement, we then, you know, have given the government a tool if they want to go and repress the people in that settlement and clear them out. And so that's yeah. frequently the case, actually, with mapping. It becomes intensely political for that reason, that it's dual use. It can be, it can be both used to provide services to people and used to oppress them. And I say that's particularly relevant, I think, for things like like buildings that are built without permission, uh, which is a common feature actually in many countries around the world. Um, so this sort of, again, an example where, oh, technology is great. We're going to improve things. Uh, we're going to go in there. We can use this wonderful digital technology. We can now map everything out. May turn out not to be helpful to the people living in those communities and quite the opposite. That's interesting. And I think the uh, if sort of take this now to to um, its logical conclusion, we can talk, you know, we've talked about maps and the geographical graph, things moving on the maps and how we think about those. And then I guess one of the other things that sort of come at the end of this is this notion of locally organized communities where where you end up in a situation where you organize around where you are. Your place reasserts itself into the digital and rather than just having this, you know, the world is flat to the the we live in a global village you're like no actually i care a lot about my locality and in news for example there's this notion right or wrong that that local news is the next big thing mm. you see local organizing uh, you see local politics becoming much more important if you're a young politician today and you're asked if you want to go into parliament or become a mayor i'd say mayor is your best bet because that's where you can actually affect some real change and so this notion of using technology to create local cohesion is something that I think Facebook has been thinking a lot about. What Do you think that's something that we'll see more tools that support this in the future? 
I think so. I think I mean, COVID has obviously had a dramatic impact here, and that we've all been forced to live much more locally. And I think many of us have have enjoyed it. I mean, it's your choice is limited, but you've actually discovered you know retailers in your neighbourhood who offered products that you didn't you weren't aware of previously because you'd probably shot straight past them and you know gone further afield. Um, so that there has been, I think, a, a very strong push towards local. Question like with a lot of things over COVID, like people cycling and exercising of you know, how long it's going to be sustained uh, when things open up and you can go back into your old wicked ways again. But um, I certainly think that local, uh, there, it now is a time to, to kind of really focus on local as a, as a, a push forward. Um, some of the, the sort of planning, the best planning around how we deal with climate change is very focused on this. It's making sure that facilities that people need are available local to the homes and and you can be really really smart about this one of the other things i'm working on is around uh, electric vehicles and charge points for electric vehicles and and you know what matters there is is there a the charging infrastructure that people need at a distance that feels comfortable to them and that's going to vary from individual to individual so some individuals may be happy walking 15 minutes from having left their car charging to home other people would be three minutes uh, other people would be half an hour and you know the same as we're going through that logic the same applies to all sorts of other facilities like how, how close do you have to be to to a health center or to a retailer for it to feel you know close enough for you so i think there's a lot of work going into that and that that does require digital tools in order to sort of so both uh, there's this sort of passive capturing of data of what people are doing. I mean, they, you know, hopefully this, they've signed up and you can see where people are going. But I think perhaps more importantly is actively engaging with people. So through things like local community groups, uh, online organizing groups and saying, look, you know, where where would a health center best be positioned for it to be most useful to all of you? Or why is this facility not being used? may turn out that you know, it's on the other side of a road, which is a real pain to cross, and nobody wants to cross that with their kids. And so it looks very close, but when you're actually in the neighbourhood, you know that if you just moved it to the other side of the road or you put a crossing in, you know that that city would get used much more. So it's that kind of granular detail. I've, uh, in the uh, electric car stuff, we're talking about uh, you need big data and small data. You need big data that kind of gives you a sense of what's going on that there's sort of broad picture and you need this very small very local data uh granular data to kind of understand how people actually use facilities and, and, and you, like, yeah i mean it could do then, both and, things it could be yes. environmentally better but it could also make us much happier frankly you know if we and, just walk and to the stuff enormously with urban planning i mean i have a, yeah. a friend who thought a lot about the urban planning and and he he sort of he he taught me this thing that that one of the core problems was that a lot of shops wanted to have a central location especially the large growth shops and uh, when they did they didn't necessarily see the flows that they thought they would see and then what he did was he went around and asked people so when do you actually shop when do you have time to shop and they were you know most people were busy so they had time to shop when their kids were doing soccer training so all of the large arenas for soccer training were outside of the city the grocery stores at the center of the city if you actually put them next to each other you got enormously effective flows and you got not a lot of congestion in the stores and you can actually be much more effective in in all the logistics because you hadn't have to go into the city to act and all of that was sort of based on looking at patterns finding them extracting them in order to understand how an urban environment evolves over time. And I think there's a lot of work to do there. But it also goes back to the question of, we, we've sort of talked about the technology, the internet as this global network for so long. And of course, it's made up of local networks, but the emphasis has been on the global. The emphasis has been on connecting all of the people in the world. It's been sort of organizing all of the information in the world. But what happens now seems to be that it might be more important to organize information locally, geographically around your environment and to connect people locally in that community and a sort of resurgence not only of the city but of the local perspective that that seems to create a second kind of of internet if you will uh, an internet mm. organized around place rather than around function is not, that taking it too far perhaps not not the internet of things but the internet of people <sighs> that's a, or places that's a, people and places people, the internet and, places, of people yeah. and places yes i mean it, it begs a really interesting question i've pondered for a while uh, which is that the, the classic internet giants the facebooks and googles that we work for the, um, the sort of information-based services have been very much in that global model and one of the things they've not done is actually systematically 
um, try to build a database of people's addresses. So they have users. The users exist as a cookie uh, in terms of their internal system or some kind of registration. Interesting, the the online retailers, the people like Amazon who've come along, are systematically collecting a series of addresses, the food delivery companies, the Ubers, they are collecting, I mean, not just necessarily your primary address, but a whole series of addresses that you use and you frequent. Um, And that's going to be, I think, a really interesting development over the next few years as to whether or not, if we are um, more focused on local, then we may sort of question who has the best data. And I think Google's and Facebook's have the best data if you like, for this sort of global world, this global model, because they've got masses and massive users carrying out lots of searches or, you know, posting lots of content. Arguably, some of these other uh, companies, Amazons, Ubers, Airbnbs, and people who, who as part of the nature of their business, it's not, it's not extra to their business. They just do have to collect physical address. They need to know where you live, where you holiday, where you drive, um, their, their data is the data that's really going to power this local revolution. Um, and I don't know whether those two come together at some point, but it's, for me, a, I think potentially a very interesting shift uh, where there will be much more of an appetite to collect addresses if we're talking about local service delivery and, and then, as I say, a different balance between those who are already address-based and those who are not. Uh, actually, for the mobile phone companies who are always complain about being left behind they're again a, uh, their infrastructure that does collect addresses as part of their everyday business and so interesting because you can imagine then that that the informational internet or the social internet the, the internet of search or, or social platforms could be built back from those local addresses into local communities and you would get an entirely new way of organizing information and connecting people and and to me it it, it, it suggests also um a kind of remedy for the conundrum of how we deal with large scale, um, large scale deliberation. You know, how can we have a global conversation? Can we have a global public sphere? And maybe the answer is just no. We can have local yeah. public spheres that interact in really good ways, and democracy could be strengthened by that. But the original democratic promise of the internet might be realized at first when we start organizing locally and connect globally rather than when we start with the global and have the local as an afterthought. It's it's kind of an intriguing, even if it's like a large picture, I think, I think it's an intriguing idea. It is. And, and so, again, you might get it sort of work at two levels, but one certainly I think, um, again, very blunt, but if you if you wanted to go to an internet company and say, can you help find all of the people who are in this particular area affected by a new development, which would be a interesting sort of democratic conversation to have. I think Amazon is probably much more likely to be able to accurately tell you who is in that area. Um, A social media company is going to be able to tell you people who've expressed an interest in that area, who maybe we think are probably somewhere in that area, but Amazon was really going to know these are the people in that area. This is how sort of active they are. Uh, This is how how much we sort of see them engaging in retail activity, at least in that area and taking deliveries, et cetera, et cetera. Um, uh, So that's interesting, I think. And then, yes, uh, you're right. It may be that it's those local conversations that are, so most meaningful for the traditional kind of democratic deliberation uh, and the the big global conversation we've talked about this before there is this question of you know the extent to which it can develop without it always being ruined by people who just kind of come in and shout um, uh, and part of the logic for or the rationale why people think others feel comfortable coming in and shouting is because they're shouting at strangers by definition your neighbors <laughs> the people in your, your community are not strangers and so you could end up with these very different conversations conversations that are organized sort of quite strictly on neighborhood uh, where people are speaking to each other as neighbors potentially about very controversial things like a, say a local development um, and that may turn out to be a sort of more substantive conversation than some of the conversations that are happening you know just just sort of blasting out to the ether having said that within that massive global network i think where you get the best conversations are in in uh, small groups on very specific issues and so to take the example something like you know the families and uh, and sufferers from rare medical conditions mm. where uh, who want to discuss a policy issue like the treatment of that medical condition actually within that kind of close community 
doesn't matter where they are geographically. Uh, it matters that they're able to share information about that and, and share thoughts on how to lobby government to improve treatment for their particular condition. But again, they're, in a sense, they're neighbours. <laughs> they're, they're people who are united by a commonality uh, that they suffer from that medical condition. Or you can think of a thousand other sort of very uh, specialist or, or uh, niche areas where people want uh, to be politically active. I think that can all work thing that works least well is u.s president is he a communist or a fascist kind of mm. stuff which you know doesn't get us anywhere uh, no <laughs> well so so it's it's so if, to coin a phrase we could talk about the topical internet where it's sort of a yeah. where it's the topos of the place or the topos of the subject that's the internet that actually holds the power to to realize the democratic promise this is interesting and um, i think we're at time with that and uh, i think this discussion can lead much further, but I do believe that's an important one that we'll see much more of. Um, people who want to read more about the podcast can do so on your website, which is? www.regulate.tech. And keep any ideas, thoughts, or questions coming, and we hope to have you tune in again next week. Thank you very much. Thank you.